0: Well, as we come to God's Word this morning, let's pause and ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. Our God and Father, we do thank you for the privilege that we have to not only have your Word, but to have it in our own language, to be able to read it. We confess that we often are too familiar with it, that we, in the face of such truth and treasure in front of us, we can neglect it. But Father, as we open your word this morning, we ask that you would please enable us to, ha- to be able to see all that you have for us in it, that our hearts might be drawn to greater love and devotion to Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's common for people to lose sight of their priorities, to have misplaced priorities. In fact, last week we talked about how there's a sea of needs around us, how everyone has so many things vying for our attention, and therefore in the midst of all of those things, people can become distracted. This is true of companies as well, right? The companies can miss their number one priority. They get distracted on side things and often have to go through a process to refocus and reprioritize what it is that they need to do. The same is true for nonprofits and organizations. What's called mission drift, this idea of where they're headed is no longer where they initially intended to go. Priorities can get out of whack. And the same is true for churches and for Christians. In Revelation chapter 2, after praising the church in Ephesus for their doctrinal commitment and for their faithful perseverance, Jesus then speaks to this church in Ephesus And says, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. In other words, Jesus Jesus is saying to this church, there's many good things that I see. Many things you're to be commended for. But there's a primacy of priority that you've missed. The love that you should have for me is not where it should be. The love of every Christian should be the Lord. He is to be their first priority in all of life. He's not just to be the one that we pay homage to on weekends. He's not just the one that we study and learn about. He's the one that we're devoted to. Our hearts, our lives, our our time, our money, everything flows towards this devotion of Christ. He's to be our first love, our greatest love, our first priority. And yet the danger represented by the church in Ephesus is a danger for us as well. That we can lose our first love. Isn't it easy to become distracted? Isn't it easy to get off the mark? To be doing so many good things but not doing the most important thing? Our passage today will help us to reprioritize to help us regain the priority, the primacy of Jesus in our lives. And so I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 38 through 42. And if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, we've got Bibles and the P-Racks in front of you, in which you'll find our passage on page 1033. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. This is a classic passage Telling the story of Martha and Mary, a passage no doubt you're familiar with, but one that as we look at it afresh this morning, will help us to reprioritize and see Jesus as our first priority. And so, follow along as I read our passage here in Luke chapter 10. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This passage, real simply, will help us see that Jesus needs to be the first priority in our lives. And it's, it's going to do that by re- helping us to recognize three truths. There's three truths here that I believe we need to recognize in order for Jesus to be the first priority of our lives. And the first truth that we need to come to grips with and realize that this passage presents for us is number one, the danger of distraction. The danger of distraction. And we see this in verses 38 through 40. First part of 40. Now this passage opens up with some vague details, you'll notice. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. Luke is giving us the setting, but he's not being very specific. <laughs> what way did they go on? What village did they enter? Well, apparently it wasn't important for the point he's trying to make. In fact, as we'll see, this village very well was Bethany, which is very near to Jerusalem. And you remember, this is part of the, this passage finds itself in the larger travel narrative of Jesus from Luke 9, verse 52, as he's traveling Uh, to Jerusalem he says he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem to the cross and so Luke is telling this account well here he slips in this this little vignette in the life of Christ that actually is quite near Jerusalem but apparently he's not wanting us to indicate that he's actually that close to Jerusalem and so is, is not looking to highlight the village. Bethany We know this is the the village that it's speaking of because in John chapter 11 and John chapter 12, we learn that Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus live in the village of Bethany. Bethany is about two miles east of Jerusalem, and it's up over the Mount of Olives. We have a a couple pictures of the village of Bethany. Uh, These are not from the time of Jesus, but these are... uh, Simply, uh, actually, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, that somewhat captures before modern invention of cars and transportation and all the rest that, that have changed the the look of things. But you can get a sense of the quaintness of the village. The Mount of Olives, as you read about throughout the New Testament, is not a single peak, as you might think of a mountain, but it's really a, a, a range of mountains, a range uh, of, of, of hilltops. And so, up and over the other side of the Mount of Olives, of that range, is this village of Bethany. But it's close. It's only two miles or so east of Jerusalem. And so Luke brings this this account here into his travel narrative for his purposes. Now, upon entering Bethany, this quaint little village... As Jesus comes with his disciples, the the account here is going to highlight Martha, Mary, and Jesus, but notice verse 38 says, they went on their way. Jesus is traveling with his disciples here. And so there's good reason to conclude that Martha is not just preparing a meal for one person, but for 15. Now John chapter 11, verse 5, tells us of Jesus' relationship with this family. It says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now this is not something written about, about every person in the Gospels. It doesn't say that Jesus loved this person, this person, this person. This is a special designation in showing Jesus' special affection for this family. He had a special place in his heart for these three siblings that lived together. In fact, he often seems to have benefited from their hospitality, a place near Jerusalem but not quite in its environs, that he could come and rest and find a meal and a place to stay. Six days, you'll remember, before his crucifixion, he stops at this very house. And it's there that he has a meal with his beloved family that Mary anoints Jesus for burial and wipes uh, his feet with her hair. And so this family is a special place in his heart. Now, From this passage and others, it seems that Martha was the oldest among the siblings. Here it says that a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She seems to be the oldest, the one somewhat in charge here. She's the one responsible for the hospitality. And she steps out of the home, welcomes Jesus in, and and invites him and the disciples into the home. Now upon Jesus' arrival, Martha starts going into motion. She is now a bustle of activity. The engine of hospitality is moving into high gear, and she knows exactly what to do. This is her power alley. This is what she loves to do. And so she just starts going around and fixing up this meal and getting everything ready for this special man and his disciples. She does this stuff well. And so she loves the Lord. She loves Jesus, and she wants to give him his, the very best. And so, it, I believe we can understand that in this verb, welcomed into her house. She says, come on in, sit right there, let me get you a meal. And so she begins bustling about. But the text then introduces us to her sister. Look at verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Martha's most possibly the oldest sibling. Then we have Mary, the younger sister. Mary, no doubt, probably took her cues from Martha, as younger siblings often do. And I believe that she was initially helping Martha prepare the meal. You'll notice in verse 40, in Martha's words, she says that, My sister has left me to serve alone. I believe there's a sense in which she may have started with Martha helping to prepare things. You can imagine Martha saying, Mary, go over and do this, and I'm gonna head over to this, and after you're done with that, I want you to head over here and start preparing this, and Mary's just following along and doing what they do so well. But as Mary begins to help out, and she's chopping something, she's slowing down because she's listening at what Jesus has to say across the room. She's not so much interested in the task. Of the preparations, she's more drawn to what Jesus is teaching she wants to catch every word she's torn between the meal prep and listening to Jesus and ultimately it's Jesus that wins out verse 39 says she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching this verb sat in the Greek is reflexive which means that it indicates that Mary took the initiative to place herself at Jesus' feet. It didn't require a call from Jesus to come sit, but Mary herself took the initiative, driven internally by her own wants and desires to go and sit at the feet of her Lord. And so she sets the mixing bowl down and goes and sits on the floor at the feet of Christ. Now this was a bold move for many reasons. One is that, it left Mary to do all the rest of the preparations. This this, family member that she knew she needed to help and help carry off such a big meal, and now she's leaving it all to Martha, no doubt this could easily be interpreted as unloving, as inconsiderate or lazy. But the second reason is a bold move is that women, although not forbidden from being taught by a rabbi, they were not often having, they were rarely welcome to have that pride of place to sit at the feet of a rabbi. The rabbis debated whether they could teach women the law, law, and generally it was agreed that they could teach women the law, but women didn't have that place to sit among the disciples of a rabbi. In this scenario, the cultural expectations would have been for Mary to be in the kitchen and preparing the meal, and Martha was doing exactly that. She was happily performing her role with gusto. Mary was breaking the mold. But let's not read into this Mary, the feminist who is seeking to simply barge her way into a man's world. She was driven by more spiritual desires than that. She wanted to hear from Jesus, she loved Christ. Her heart longed to listen to her Lord, and that led her to sit at Jesus' feet. Sitting sitting at the feet of a rabbi was the position of a disciple. One who sought to hear what this teaching man had to say. Those who were in tutelage, officially disciples of a rabbi, would spend their time at the feet of the one who taught them. In Acts 22, verse 3, Paul himself describes himself as being educated at the feet of Gamaliel, the rabbi. And so he showed that he was a disciple of this eminent Jewish rabbi. He sat at his feet. Flip back a page or two to Luke chapter 8. We'll see another person who was in this position of a disciple. Luke chapter 8, verse 35. This is the story of the man who was possessed by a demon. And many demons, actually, as verse 30 says... Jesus cast the demons out of the man, and then look how the people find him in verse 35. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. This man was not only freed from the demons, but he had entered into discipleship with Jesus. He was not say, hey, sweet, thanks, Jesus, I'm all free now, and whistling on his way. He recognized that his life was totally changed. He owed it all to Christ, and he was now devoting himself to him, seeking to learn from him. The same is true with Mary. You see, Mary had actually a lot more time with Jesus than even some others did. With how much Jesus stayed at their house, she got to hear the heart of the Lord. She knew that Jesus wanted her to learn from him. She knew that Jesus would not cast her out. She she knew that Jesus was not opposed to women sitting in that position of discipleship. She knew that Jesus wanted women to know his father as well as he did. And so she put down the serving utensils and sat at the feet of her Lord. Well, now, after this serene description of Mary being discipled, the narrative then snaps back to Martha to see her, and we find her distracted. Mary's being discipled, Martha's being distracted. Look at verse 40. It says, But Martha was distracted with much serving. The verb distracted here means to be pulled away. You can get this sense of uh, trying to focus on something, but getting. You know, the distracted pulled away at something else. And it says she was distracted or pulled away with much serving. She buzzed around the kitchen. You can picture her going from the cutting board over to the oven, to the cupboard, to the table. She's a blur of activity as she's preparing this meal and trying to do it to the best of her ability. And yet in all her movement, she didn't move towards Jesus. She was pulled away From the most important thing. But notice, she was not pulled away by bad things. She was busy with, notice what it says, much serving. Much serving. This is the word behind serving, is where we get the word deacon from. She wasn't spending her time on entertainment, she wasn't taking care of her own needs. She wasn't being lazy, she was serving others. Isn't that good? Of course it was good to be serving Jesus and his disciples, but there were two things wrong with her serving. First is she lost sight of her priorities. She needed to keep it all in perspective. The serving, though, became an end in itself rather than a means to an end. In other words, the goal is not just a great meal. The goal is to worship Christ. And the great meal was a a means to do that. She should be seeking to prepare a meal simply enough to be able to spend time with her Lord. But she lost sight of that ultimate goal. Instead, the meal became the thing simply to do. The second thing that was wrong with her serving is that she began to take pride in her identity as a servant. In other words, instead of finding joy in serving the Lord, her pleasure was most found in what she was doing. In this moment, she took her identity in her ministry instead of in her relation to Jesus. And so, folks, here in this example of Martha, we find the danger of distraction. For us, too, there are many things that can pull us away from what's important. The good can become the enemy of the best. And so I want us to think about what are some ways, some things in our lives that may be pulling you away this morning. Some things that may be pulling your heart away. A few categories for us. First is entertainment and leisure. This is the easiest target, right? And under this category, there is a whole host, and I would say an expanding host of things that could fall here. You could put Movies, TV shows, music, social media, video games, whether that be Wordle or Warcraft. (laughs) Now these things are not wrong in and of themselves. But there's two ways that all this entertainment can become sin for us. The first is that they have immoral content. This should be fairly obvious. Our consciences know this. But anything we watch or listen to must accord to the standards found in God's Word. It's that simple. If the Bible calls us to to flee certain sins, to not participate in things, then we should not allow ourselves to be entertained by such things. We can't be defiled by our our entertainment. Because this would normalize what God condemns. So friends, as the church we must not be entertained by the very things that put Christ upon the cross. We should not laugh, smile, or enjoy the things that so are hated by the heart of God. If we are growing in our imitation of the Lord, then we too should hate those very things. So these innocent things of themselves can become sin for us if they have immoral content but the second way they can be sin for us in this is the, what our passage reminds us of is that they, if they distract us if they distract us so much of our lives today in the west is concerned with the trivial and the banal just stuff that has no consequence whatsoever but is vying for our attention day after day there is such a battle for our attention between advertisements and notifications. They bombard us from morning to night. And so we can easily spend hours a day with insignificant things. And so this is where we need to take inventory. And the reality is, is for most uh, all segments of, uh, of society, if you ask them how much time do you spend in these categories and then you actually record their time, they often always underestimate their time. So as we take inventory of ourselves, let's assume a little bit on the high side that we're probably estimating a little low. How often do you spend time just perusing your phones, right? Those distraction things in our pockets that ding us, buzz us, all the time and have you found this of yourself that those times that you pull it out because you're not really looking for anything specific you're actually just looking for something to distract you you're like let me just find something i don't want to be here right now or i'm waiting in line or i'm just and you're not looking for something to read you don't have any idea what you're going for you just opened your phone or maybe you've done it on your computer and you're just looking for something that your distraction mechanism is just looking for something to scroll through and this is exactly what social media was designed to fulfill. <laughs> it knows that you, you want just something to put before your eyes, and so you scroll and scroll and scroll, and there's a reason it's unending. It was designed to be addictive, designed to distract us perpetually. These were all designed to pull us into using it more. In fact, some of you are being distracted right now, potentially. Potentially to feel that buzz in your pocket or to scroll through that list of whatever. It's so pervasive. Again, social media isn't wrong in and of itself. These things are not inherently sin, but if they distract us from what's most important, if they begin to dominate our lives and our time and our attention, then they can become sin. They can pull us away from what's most important. Time in prayer becomes minimal. Time in the Word is meager. Time reading books to grow in Christ is scant. And so, To paraphrase Pastor John Piper, he said on Judgment Day, entertainment and social media will stand as testimony that it is simply not true that we did not have enough time to pray. It's just not true. We make time for what's important to us. I had a coach, my high school basketball team had hanging on the wall for us young men said if it's important to you, you'll find a way. If it's not, you'll find an excuse. If it's important to you, you'll find a way. If it's not, you'll find an excuse. And so if there's something that you're not doing, that means you're making excuses for it and it's not important to you. We've got to be honest with ourselves. So one easy place to identify distractions is our entertainment and our leisure. The second way we can identify some distractions is our responsibilities. And you say, responsibilities? How can that distract us? Well, here we move into the realm of, out of the realm of the optional to the realm of the required. This is our jobs, our work that we are called to do. Our daily responsibilities, whether it be with our families, our jobs, or other commitments. These are responsibilities we cannot and should not escape. We care for our spouse. We shepherd our children from the moment they wake up to the moment we put them to bed, and sometimes even after we put them to bed. And we obviously have our jobs and our careers. These things are good that we occupy ourselves with every day. But even in these good things, we can't allow the good to become the enemy of the best. God wants us to be faithful in our families, faithful in our workplaces, but he doesn't want these responsib- responsibilities to pull us away from himself. They are not to be all-encompassing. He is to be our first love, and we're to be still devoting our time to him. Yes, we must be diligent in our labor and our vocations, but He's not pleased to see us pulled away from intimate communion with him in prayer. He doesn't want to see us drift in our affections. He wants our hearts, not just our busy activity. We can't be distracted with much serving, with much activity, as good as it is, as we see with Martha. Intimacy with Christ does not occur if we never slow down. It will not happen if we continue to plow forward in our days and do not pause. But there's a third cause of distraction that this passage reminds us of and that is ministry. Entertainment, leisure, responsibilities, thirdly, ministry. Ministry can be some of our most insidious distractions because it looks and feels like we're doing something for God. Well, I'm giving my time to the church. I'm serving other people. And even other people might think that we're walking with the Lord because we're doing good godly things. We're dealing with the word of God. We're we're helping others. We're giving up our time. But Martha's example here reminds us that serving the Lord does not necessarily translate into worshiping the Lord. Being busy for Jesus doesn't mean that one is listening to him with an open heart. When we engage in ministry, we feel the joy of serving the Lord and serving his people But we must learn from this account that much serving can cause us to be distracted from what's most important. Because if we're too busy in ministry to spend time with the Lord, to worship at his feet, then we're too busy. If we're too busy meeting other people's needs that we can't commune with God while we work, then ministry is becoming a distraction. So the first truth that this passage reminds us of is the danger of distraction that we can easily be distracted and we need to do an inventory of our lives to see where is it that my distraction is being pulled away from what's most important. The second truth we need to realize in this passage is the digression of self-righteousness. The digression of self-righteousness. And we see this in the rest of verse 40. Verse 40. Verse 40 continues to reveal Martha's heart. It says, But Martha was distracted with much serving, and as she went up to him, and she went up to him and said, Lord, 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 do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. You can easily see, imagine Martha worrying about the kitchen, right? She's moving around, just busy doing all sorts of things, and her frustration level is rising. And, you know, she may have uh, even been a little bit of like, Mary, get over here. You know, stirring the bowl, looking over there, maybe clinging a little bit louder, boom, you know, kind of getting Mary's attention, hoping that she can jostle her attention and get her back over here. And you, can, can we not understand how that anger level rises? We've all been there. And so as Jesus taught and Mary listened, there's a sinful digression taking place in Mary's heart. In Martha's heart, rather. And it's a digression, again, that we're all familiar with. First part of this digression is a self-righteousness. It begins with a self-righteousness. Martha believes that she's doing the right thing. She believes that there is no other way that she could be serving God or doing what is honoring to God, and that she is Checking the box for what God wants her to do. But see, what began as a kind and generous act of loving her, Lord, has developed into an act of self-righteousness to prove how good she is, to prove how righteous she is. At least more righteous than her sister, Mary. I mean, look at her. But then it goes from self-righteousness to self-pity. Self-pity. Martha begins to have pity on herself. She falls into this trap. No one else is taking so much effort to care for the Lord. No one else, including my sister, is not working so hard to try to help Jesus. I alone am here to do this. I'm giving my energy and my time to make the best meal for Jesus. Why am I the only one? At this point, she is thinking only about herself, isn't she? only about what she is doing and not thinking about others. So this, then, self-pity turns toward, number three, resentment towards others. Resentment towards others. Martha then resents her sister. From her exalted, self-righteous position, she looks down her nose at her sister who remains seated at Jesus' feet. And she becomes bitter in attitude and angry in heart. She takes Mary's actions, right, as an attack against herself. How could she do this to me? She has left me alone to prepare and serve this meal. She obviously does not love me and is only acting selfishly. She resents her sister. And fourth and finally, there's idolatry of the heart. Idolatry of the heart. Because Martha's attitude of self-righteousness ultimately leads towards a resentment towards the Lord. Notice that her outburst is not ultimately directed towards Mary, but to Jesus. In anger, she finally puts the dish down, marches across the room, and you can imagine her wiping her hands on her apron, just fuming, you know, we talk about steam coming out the ears, And even though it was Mary's actions that began this mess in her minds, it is Jesus' fault for allowing it to continue. And so she interrupts Jesus' teaching to deliver an urgent message. But in this message, we see her commit two errors. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? First error is she doubted the Lord's love. She doubted the Lord's love. Lord, do you not care? The events have led her to doubt whether Jesus even cares for her. It's brought a cloud over the heart of Jesus. She's convinced herself that Jesus' love must have ceased for her because he is allowing and seeming to endorse her sister to commit such a great atrocity against her. But if he actually cared for me, If Jesus loved me, then he would have told Mary to go back and not allow her to stay at his feet. But he didn't. He just continues to let her sit there. Lord, do you not care? But Martha's second error was that she not only doubted the Lord's love, but she directed the Lord's authority. She thought she could steer the command of the Lord. She thought she could steer Jesus to do what she wanted. Notice after her question she says tell her then to help me. She assumed that he would answer, "Of course, Martha, I love you." "Well then Mary, why don't you go help your sister Martha?" But notice Jesus doesn't play into that. Martha's ministry has led her to her distraction. Which has developed into anger and ultimately ended in her idolatry. She's not worshiping Jesus anymore. She's not trying to please her Lord. She's trying to please herself. And this is what happens in all of our self righteous digressions. We end up replacing the Lord as our ultimate, and we put ourselves upon that throne. Even though, notice, what does she call Jesus here? She calls him Lord. But she's not treating him as Lord. She's not saying, Lord, what should I do? She says, Lord, do this. She is acting like the Lord of Lords. She is acting like Jesus' judge, knowing the true intentions and motives of his heart. She is Jesus' boss, telling him what to do. And so Martha is in this sorry place of worshiping herself, and yet she's not receiving the worship she believes she deserves, and so she's angry at the other people in the room. In her mind, in her heart, she is sitting upon the throne, and the actions of the other people in the house should be serving her. They should act according to her wishes and seeking to please her. And because they failed to do this, she is now expressing her righteous wrath. Her honor has been trampled upon. Her wishes have been disobeyed. Her glory has been neglected. Friends, we can shake our heads at Martha, but this is exactly what happens in our own hearts as we rise in anger towards those around us. We slide down this digression so easily, do we not? It's because our hearts are desperately wicked There's a sin nature in us. Even for us who are redeemed, we're not yet fully purified. Sin is not, the presence of sin is not fully removed from us, and so we battle with it. We find ourselves slipping down this way. We can believe in the righteousness of our own cause, and we end up hurting others around us through our anger. And more than this, we end up no longer listening to our Lord, no longer caring whether we're pleasing Him. We cease to prioritize Jesus in our hearts and lives. And so when we follow this digression, our marriages no longer are about putting Jesus on display, but about our own honor. When we follow this digression, our parenting is no longer about showing the gentle guiding love of Jesus, but about our will being obeyed in wrath if we're disobeyed. When we follow this digression, our ministry is no longer about laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters, but about us being recognized and appreciated. If we are to keep Jesus central in our lives, friends, we must be aware of the way self-righteousness can take roots in our hearts and the ways it causes to digress into anger, resentment, and ultimately idolatry. I ask you, have you walked this path recently? Maybe there's an incident this very week in which you know you walked down this very path. One way to know and to evaluate whether Jesus is the first priority in your heart is to look for the signs of this digression. When have you gotten angry recently? And if you evaluate that situation, more often than not, you will find that at its core is an idolatry where Jesus is is not receiving your adoration. But rather you would rather Jesus accomplish your desires and change somebody else. This digression of self-righteousness is close at hand for all of us and the story of Martha reminds us of it. So this, we've seen so far that in order for Jesus to be the priority of our lives, we've got to realize, number one, the danger of distraction. Number two, the digression of self-righteousness. And thirdly, we need to realize the primacy of the Lord. Very simple, you need to realize and be reminded of the primacy of the Lord. Let's look at this in verses 41 and 42. Jesus has been spending time with his disciples, and Mary, who then joined in, ever since he entered the house of Martha, he's been teaching, discussing, fellowshiping with them, having a grand old time, and even though he's resting from his journey, right, he's just finished, he's now being welcomed in, he's experiencing some hospitality, but his job isn't done, and he's not putting his feet up and saying, no, time out, sorry guys, I'm all taught out, I can't teach anymore, I can't give anymore. No, even here, even after he's resting, he's giving more and more to the people around him. He's still on mission, serving and teaching. He's not in me mode. And yet it's into this that Martha comes steaming across the room to face him. And I believe Jesus, we know he's, he's wise, wiser than any of us. He saw the storm brewing, didn't he? He's sitting there teaching Mary. And it's the extra clank in the kitchen or it's the the stomping across the kitchen that he he knows what's going on in Martha's heart. Not only because he's sovereign and all-knowing, but because he also knows people. He knows how we operate. And so he knows the way that this digression was taking place in Martha's heart. And so after Martha interrupts his teaching, and finishes her rant. Look at what Jesus replies, verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. This double use of her name, Martha, Martha, indicates two things. Number one, it shows his seriousness. Martha, I've got something important to tell you. But the second thing it indicates is his tenderness. He looks at this woman who is not looking to please him and worship him, and he knows all that's going on in her heart, and yet he shows genuine tenderness to his friend. He's not discounting her concerns. He's trying to calm her down. He's showing his affection to her. And he first begins by identifying the problem in Martha. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. In her distraction, in her busy serving, she had become anxious and troubled. Her mind and heart are looking to what needs to be done without relation to the Lord's role in her life. She has forgotten that she needs not be worried about anything but simply needs to be looking to the Lord. But this happens to all of us when we are not worshiping the Lord, right? How does anxiety grow up in your heart? How do you become worried and fretful? Isn't it often when we've lost sight of the Lord? When Jesus and all of who he is and all of his power and sovereignty and all of his love and grace, when we're not meditating upon that. That we begin to be worried about our lives, about what we have to do, about what's not being done. When Christ is not full in our mind, our heart, our affections, when we are trusting ourselves is when we worry. And we grow anxious because we know we are limited and we cannot deliver on all of our desires. And yet in the face of her anxiety and distraction, Jesus speaks a kind reminder to Martha... Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things, but one thing is necessary. One thing is most important. One thing is necessary or needed. What is that one thing? Well, some commentators would say, Jesus is telling Martha, Martha, listen, you don't have to prepare so many dishes of food. You can just provide one. A simple meal is all you need. And that may be included in some of Jesus' exhortation here. But that's not the most that's not the one thing, one dish. It's not he's not just placing an order. Okay? Because what he tells is that Martha has chosen the good portion, and this will not be taken away from her. So whatever he's talking about has to be something that Martha or the Mary is going to keep forever. So that can't be food. This idea of the good portion and this one thing necessary finds its origin in the Old Testament. David identified. The greatest priority of his heart in Psalm 27, verse 4. A familiar verse. It says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I, that, will, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David's greatest priority was to worship. To worship the Lord. He also identified that the Lord was the portion of his life and of all eternity, and that would make him complete and satisfied forever. This idea of a portion, a good portion, is something that you have that makes you satisfied forever. Psalm 16, verse 5. He says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Psalm 73, verse is 26 to 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. In Psalm 142, verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So what's going on here? Jesus is saying that Mary is following in the footsteps of David. That she has made the worship of the Lord her first priority. That she has made the Lord her good portion that she is going to cling to. That is going to dominate her heart and her life. In light of everything else, Jesus is most important. And the promise Jesus gives is that this will not be taken away from her. She can have this have the Lord. She can worship him. And no one can take that away. Though all of her possessions, all of her family, all of that be taken away, this the Lord as her possession cannot be taken away. And so friends, this text forces us to ask ourselves whether Jesus is our portion. Whether we can say that he is our first priority in our lives. Is listening to Jesus and sitting at his feet your ultimate and top priority? Do you want to know him more? Can you say the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup? That I have nothing else on earth besides you? Or maybe you've become distracted. Maybe you've become anxious and troubled about the many things that you have going on in your life. There's much in this world to be worried about but we can know that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that he will see us through, that we can gain a steadiness in the midst of all of those distractions. And so three areas of application I want you to consider this morning. Number one is silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. I can't get away from this passage without thinking about this idea of setting aside the things that make us so busy and distracted and going to sit in the feet of Jesus. For us, do we ever stop? Do we ever pause? Have moments of quiet? Not for just mindless meditation, but for thinking upon the Lord. Do we practice silence and solitude in any sort of way? Those of us with young families... Do we make time for each other with the, each other's spouse to get time away of silence and solitude so that we can hear and sit at the feet of Jesus? And so that leads to the second area of application, that is Bible and prayer. Very simply. Are we making time to spend time with the Lord in prayer and with an open Bible? This idea of sitting at the feet of Jesus I don't believe can happen in a, in a five minute read a verse. There's time that's got to be spent at his feet. Again, can we really say that Jesus is our first priority if we give him five minutes of our 24 hours? And the third area of application I want you to consider this morning is what I'm calling Coram Deo. This was a favorite Latin phrase of the late R.C. Sproul. Who, it's a Latin phrase that means before the face of God or in the presence of God. And the reality that we live all of our days Coram Deo, We live all of our lives, every moment of the day, before the face of God. But the problem is, we're often not living conscious of that. We're not practicing the presence of God. We're not practicing the reality that we are with the Lord, that we can commune with Him, that we can sit at Jesus' feet and have that communion and have that relationship and that fellowship and that sweetness through all those things that we have going. Martha could have, in one sense, uh, worshipped the Lord even as she served. The point of this is not to develop a monkish life where we leave everything and go just spend 100% of our days praying and fasting and and reading the Bible. That's not the point of this. The point is, is to live lives of communion before the Lord every day. We need to develop intimacy with the Lord, not just go through religious motions. Friends, Jesus came and lived a perfect life, died upon the cross in order to reconcile us with the Lord so that we, as we began the service talking about, we can approach God because we have his righteousness. You can have a relationship with the living God because of Jesus, because of the sacrifice upon the cross, because of his death, burial, and resurrection. You are accepted before him if you've placed your faith in him. Take advantage of that. Live in light of that gospel. Live in light of that good news. (laughs) Treasure Jesus above all things. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Where he says he counts everything else as rubbish. For the sake of knowing Christ. This was the most important thing of his life. And he says, forgetting what lies behind, there's one thing and I press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He had a focus of his priorities. And friends, that's what we need to have as we live our days. In the midst of all the things that we have, God has placed us to spread out across this community every week. Every week. And yet Jesus is to remain our first priority. We spend time in silence and solitude before him and then we head out in his name as his ambassadors living Coram Deho in worshipful heart attitude as we go. Now let me just say if you're here this morning and Jesus doesn't factor into your life at all. Maybe you've been hearing this and you recognize that Jesus is not a priority for you at all. Then I encourage you, I exhort you to stop trying to live life your own way. Stop placing you as the Lord of your life. Stop serving yourself and recognize that for that sin, God has promised an eternity of wrath. But that very God has provided a way of escape. He's provided salvation through his son Jesus. And he calls all who would to come The door of the gospel is open to all. There is no sin that is too great that would keep one from coming to Christ. Jesus said that all who come to me, I will never cast out. Come with a heart of faith. Believe and trust in him alone to save you. And then commit to him as Lord and find the blessing of knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I encourage you to talk to someone today. Talk to me. Talk to someone next to you. Don't leave today without knowing that Jesus is your Lord. So friends, this passage calls us to place Jesus as our first priority. We cannot have priority drift. We must place Jesus first in our life and we must ask God's help in doing that. So let's do that together. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God, we ask for your help. We want Jesus to be first. We want to prioritize him in all of our lives, but Lord, we know that we fall short. We know that we get distracted and we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you that you do not scold us, but you are tender towards us in our weakness and our failings. We thank you that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And so we ask that you would please help us this week and the days ahead to be a people who see Jesus first and when we find him not in first place in our hearts that we'd repent and make it right again. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.